Welcome to another episode of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science The Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today I would like to share some thoughts and ideas around a project and a paper I've been working on for a while, but it's still a work in progress, but I'd love to hear your feedback on it. But it has a tentative title, System Failures in Zoos and Aquarium-Related Domains. And it probably will have some sort of subtitle with, of course, positive you know, opportunities for us, because that's what we always want to focus on. Of course, we want to highlight the things that we can improve, that we may have to stop, but we definitely want to highlight all the wonderful work that we are already doing and the positive opportunities that we have for making a difference. It's related to a presentation that I gave in 2018 in my then role as the first director of animal welfare with WASA, a position that has been discontinued due to financial reasons in April 2018, unfortunately, and I hope it will be reinstated at some point. This presentation was one of several at a seminar that was called Animals in the Anthropocene. This seminar was organized through Reeves, in collaboration with Wageningen University and Research, the Open University in the Netherlands, the University of Maastricht, and the Institute for Applied Ethology and Animal Psychology. And of course, WASA was part of that. The description of the seminar read, much of the discussion of the Anthropocene has centered upon anthropogenic global warming and climate change and the urgency of political and social responses to this problem. However, assessing the effects of human activity on the planet requires more than just the quantification of ecological impacts. It requires recognizing and evaluating a wide range of territories and terrains full of non-human agents and interests and meaning exposed to profound forces of change that give their name to the Anthropocene. It is from the perspective of the animal question, asking how best to think and live with other animals, that the seminar Animals in the Anthropocene will discuss our new relationship with the animals around us. Working with zoos and aquariums and promoting optimal well-being for the many animals in our care, what does such a relationship look like? What are the different distant and proximate aspects related to animal well-being that are important for us to review and address? What can we do or do we have to start doing to continue to make a difference for animals? This podcast is part of a series of podcasts to be released and is related to that particular that I early, uh, that I early mentioned. And it's, of course, also based on my own experiences and observations of working in the animal care and welfare field in zoos and aquariums. And, of course, the countless interactions, discussions and valuable reflections with friends and colleagues for which I'm very, very grateful. So many of you have enriched my life and continue to do so with all the work. 
Any topics discussed within, of course, also apply or part of them could apply to other fields such as sanctuaries, shelters, companion animals, really all the systems, if you like, where animals are. While there are, of course, differences between countries and regions, what I find very interesting is that there is also some sort of universality of many of these obstacles and challenges that we face together. And while there are differences, there are many more similarities. And while working local is key, it's of course also a need and an opportunity to find support and strength through this global collaboration. And thank you again, all for you out there that are caring for animals, doing research, working in the protection of animals and so much more. The animals need all of us and we also need all of us to continue to make a difference. So let's go to this presentation. And I was also inspired by one of these quotes that I read a while ago by uh, James Clear. And it was, if you genuinely care about the goal, you focus on the system. And I think this is really an important point because we have lots of different goals. The goal, of course, animal well-being, conservation, education, and many more. And today I'm going to focus, of course, on animal well-being because that's my uh, main area of expertise. So the reboot of existing failures in zoos and aquarium-related domains is really kind of looking at how could we make changes in the systems that many of the symptoms that we are dealing with in animal well-being and care, of course, are flowing from. So the abstract at the time read, the global zoo community has made great efforts and progresses to understanding, promoting and engaging in the welfare, in animal welfare and conservation domain. However, there are many, among others, various legal, educational, strategical and operational aspects which affect animal welfare and which warrant critical analysis, discussion, mitigation and resolve. And of course, for this podcast, it will highlight some of these system failures, as I've started to call them, like root problems, where do they come from and how can we try and work together to solve them? And of course, also some sort of call to action because there's so many different pieces of it. So who is going to do what? And some of them can be solved very quickly. We call often call low-hanging fruit, but other things might take years, decades, might not even be you know, in the time of my career uh, that they can be resolved because a lot of things take uh, a lot of time. But too often, I think we still deal with symptoms rather than actually going to the root of the problem. And so in which ways can we be working locally and globally and also specifically through multidisciplinary collaborations to come to solutions? solutions to the, the symptoms that are flowing from the systems that aren't working appropriately. Okay, so reboot, that was kind of the idea, like how do we reboot, right? When a system isn't working well, then how do we go and change it? And very importantly, you know, when we say system failures in zoos and aquariums, it is because we are critically looking, we're autocritically looking, at how are you know the things that we do internally as zoos and aquariums, um, how can we improve those? What are opportunities for change? And then also, so there's that internal and external aspect of that. 
But then also, what are the other systems that are affecting us, right? not allowing us to do our jobs in the way we would like to do them with the animals, not being able to build in the way that we would like to do for the animals, not being able to observe the animals, and so on and so on. So there's the internal and external aspects that are going to influence how we can care uh, for animals and, of course, promote optimal well-being. And what is really important to me is that, of course, we have to, as a community, look critically, being autocritical, like what are we good at, you know, and of course, communicating that. What are we not so good at or what don't we know how to do? Um, we're, of course, all aware about the things that we don't know that we don't know. But I'm really, you know, there's a lot of things that we do know, but we don't necessarily do them. So, but the important part is that we can at ourselves and you know seeing how we can make changes we also look beyond in what changes need to be made in other areas that affect us but it's very important for me that you know we have this solution driven mind a creative mind a positive attitude you know respect listening and working together and of course there's lots of different ways of going about that um you know there's this saying like when i was preparing for this presentation there was this very nice flyer and it said it had a tent on it on the beach and it said you know when there's wind you know people some people build windscreens and then next to the tent was a windmill and you know then the saying continued and others build wind turbines so there's different solutions uh, to different problems and depending on what sort of outcome do you want and what sort of things are you trying to achieve uh, but when there is wind, what do we do with that wind? But, uh, you know, there's, it's really important for us to keep looking at what are the challenges for us that we face and which of them can we, and, and also how can those challenges, like um, there's this book that is uh, called Obstacle is the Way. And, uh, you know, obstacles are the way where, you know, you have to find solutions to how can you use those obstacles to find solutions. And that's, of course, really critical in what we are going to do. And of course, you know, there is much to say about animal welfare. There's the WASA animal welfare uh, strategy. There's lots of documents out there. You know, anything around, you know, our responsibility for achieving high standards of animal welfare. And of course, also being these animal welfare leaders, advocates and authoritative advisors in ways that we can really you know, identify what are these problems? What are the internal uh, opportunities and challenges and external opportunities and challenges? And so how do we uh, become even more these leaders, these advocates and the, uh, the authorities, really the professionals that are going to highlight what needs changing? So when we look at system failures or faulty systems, um, it, you know, we can obviously, when we think of that, we might think of a computer or a power supply or an operational or something, you know, something is failing or a component of something is failing within that system or that equipment. And so that is also for us to really identify when we are focusing on something, whether it's 
education that is related to doing our work or legislation uh, that is going to affect whether we can have to move animals uh, from the outdoor to the indoor at night, all those things. We want to look at the whole system and we want to look at the various components and then see what parts work and what parts might need changing. So the system failure, of course, then when we look at it that way, means that there's a failure of any component that supports you know, the overall power, if you like, supply orientation uh, or of equipment. So um, think of, you know, what in what ways does it work and in what ways does it not work? And of course, when we're thinking of symptoms, um, we are thinking about, okay, so this, the symptoms, you know, just like when you get a prescription, you know, you might have some sim symptoms, some contraindicators, that could happen when you take a certain medicine or the symptoms, you know, from a disease, the apparent or some of them are not necessarily so apparent. So that's also for us something when we shine lights, when we bring a magnifying glass, um, we have to think about what are some of the symptoms that are flowing from certain legislation or from a lack of education or from of course, then flipping it, because these are, again, perhaps focusing on the challenges or the things that are difficult. We also want to look at, you know, the opposite. So what is the positive outcome from great education programs and great conservation programs or excellent animal welfare programs? So what are the opportunities for us there to engage, to share with the public, to, you know, um, expand the narrative online? All those things are important. So, like I mentioned, solution-driven and positive attitude is really key. But of course, we have to shine a light on the things that we can uh, do better. And then, you know, what is important is that when I have this presentation, because I want to focus on solutions and positive attitudes and opportunities, we were asking people to start thinking about you know, what are the challenges that zoos and aquariums have, you know, with regards to animal welfare and then related to these various domains that I will be discussing. But I also, I said, start to, you know, get your brain ready to think about opportunities, you know, that we have. And then think about the internal and the external uh, opportunities and challenges. So that was, you know, I will sharing in the other podcasts more about this. But the topics that I, at the time, connected with, with this group of people that were in the room, or almost 40, um, revolved around animal care and management. What are the various aspects that you're thinking about when you're thinking about animal care and welfare? What sort of opportunities and challenges do you encounter when you have to care for the animals, when you have to manage them on a day-to-day -day basis, um, how you house, the nutrition, all the various aspects. And uh, people were asked to think about that. People were also asked about what are the challenges that we're facing with the animals? And also anything from undesired behavior to animals that maybe are afraid or anxious to, of course, the positive what opportunities do we see with the animals? What positive outcomes do we see with the animals based on animal uh, welfare indicators, animal-based indicators? And so people started to really bring forth, you know, the, 
enrichment programs, the training programs, the design of the environment, all these various opportunities, but also, you know, how does the opening and closing hours affect the animals? So people were really asked, you know, what opportunities and challenges did animal care and management and welfare have? And also specifically, in which ways could we expand further collaboration between zoo associations globally? So some of the ideas um, are, you know, to develop overarching materials. I think it would be really helpful if we have overarching materials that can be amended and, you know, changed to suit an individual and have, of course, lots of materials, but have these kind of overarching materials that are developed by experts of a particular field. Well, it might be enrichment or it may be training or it may be nutrition, but really information that kind of can then, you know, fan out and it's created by global experts working together. It's kept up to date. So that's a way of really moving that forward. So we're not individually making lots of different um, materials and uh, or sometimes in in different regions similar uh, materials the other thing that we could think about is how can we you know integrate a lot more the collaborations on animal care and welfare related research and really ensuring also that so working together with institutes with research facilities and also ensuring that that research or applied research ends up in best practice guidelines. So really making sure that there is that bridge between what we know through science and that we can use uh, when we are caring for the animals. And of course, really the challenge, how do we do that? And of course, everyone uh, that has heard me speak knows that I nausea talk about, you know, the 24 seven across lifespan approach, which uh, is in development uh, continuously, because of course, uh, both Professor Hannah Buchanan-Smith and myself are thinking about, you know, how does this apply to the animals and in what ways does it affect, um, you know, how we care for the animals. So anything from life stages to the very variations that uh, may arise from husbandry routines and the weather and the climate too, of course, you know, how do we uh, monitor, how do we assess animal welfare and uh, how does habitat management have, can have a positive income, uh, uh, impact on the animals and all these things together that, you know, where we really thinking about the animals being there all time, even when uh, we go home. And of course, working hours, you know, how does that differ from day to day, from the weekdays to the weekend days? And, you know, and also the time that we are at the facility, in what ways challenges that we face there because we're busy, we have a lot of maintenance, preparing food and cleaning, or what opportunities do we have through habitat management, making the, ha the habitat work um, for the animals in ways that they can operate, be agents of their own lives. So again, thinking deeply about how does that affect animal welfare? And of course, it then also takes me uh, to thinking about law and of course versus tradition. So there's of course, you know, lots of traditions still ongoing where animals are brought in at night, uh, even though by law that is not necessarily required. It might be because of you know, that's how we've done it for a long time. 
It might be concerns for the weather. It might be other concerns uh, for escape, for danger. But all those things are really important because, of course, if we know that by law we have to bring in the animals overnight, then that, of course, is going to spill into how do we design the environments for animals in a way that they can have really, really good quality um, back of house areas. And I really encourage you to watch the EASA Animal Welfare Series webinar that um, John Cole and myself did on the back of house and challenging the back of house traditions and primates as a case study where we really discuss, you know, what do the most of the back of house areas, the sleeping dens, even though a lot of animals don't necessarily go to sleep there, but in what ways, you know, um, are we designing these areas differently for the animals? Particularly also if law dictates, for example, that we have to bring in the animals at night because they fall into the danger category. But in what other ways do laws, you know, affect the, how we care for animals. So, you know, whether it's animal welfare legislation and licensing and inspections, it is really important for us to look at, you know, which countries have animal welfare legislation, in what ways are animals protected and in what ways are they enforced and looked at, you know, are they, when there's inspections and is that based on input or outcome of the animal-based parameters? And also, what is the criteria for obtaining a zoo license? And one of the things that I've uh, proposed for quite a few years now is that I think, you know, now a lot of, there's a lot of countries where there's a lot of different zoos. It's not that difficult to actually get a zoo license uh, compared to how difficult I think it should be. But it's really about, you know, if we have a certain standard like EASA standard or a BIASA standard or an AZA or a ZA, um, Australasia standard, in what way, you know, there's certain criteria there for, you know, anything from safety to biosecurity to education programs and research and, of course, animal welfare. And so that, to me, should be the level of licensing. So if you can you know, prove that you can operate at that level and that you have, you know, the, the expertise, the money, the supports to actually do that, um, then that is a great, you know, criteria to give a zoo license to somebody. But I think, you know, to hope that people and organizations will move to, towards that, those levels, um, that I think is very challenging and often not a realistic a goal. Now, of course, I'm well aware that we have lots of zoos and aquariums today, uh, and many of them are doing a lot of work to improve and maintain good animal welfare and all the other programs uh, like conservation and education. But I'm specifically also talking about having more and new facilities pop up, new zoo licenses being given. So, you know, those things to me, uh, when we're thinking about What's the, sim the system and versus what are the symptoms? Lots of really poor zoos, roadside zoos, um, zoos that are not operated at the professional level that we, you know, those are all symptoms of a system that isn't working. Um, or who does the inspections? You know, are the inspectors and it's really great that, 
you know, um, zoo associations and others are working together with governments to really, you know, train the inspectors on doing the inspections. So that I think is a really great example of how, you know, what is the, sim the, the system, what are the symptoms, zoo inspectors not necessarily knowing how to, you know, how we care for wild animals in human care. And, you know, zoo associations and others stepping up to do the training. So trying to deal with those symptoms. And so that's another topic that we discussed in that uh, presentation. And of course, uh, you know, EASA and many others are actively engaging in the um, zoo directive and other aspects of legislation and regulations and so are other zoo associations. And in what ways uh, does that, um, you know, can we do more of that? And in what ways uh, do we may need to change some of uh, the interactions or some of the legislation that is out there? Another topic that I discussed was revolving around the design and architecture. So because we all, obviously, the, the first thing that for most kind of come to mind and we're kind of joking about it, but we're not, is about the drains, like who put the drains uphill, and that often has to do with design. But it is, you know, really, really key. You know, when we talk about habitat management, you know, the opportunity uh, for animals to be agents of their own life, to have complexity, to have choices, to have control, um, all of that is going to flow from excellence in design and excellence in architecture that really works for the animals, but of course also works for other stakeholders like the visitors, like the staff caring for the animals and everybody else involved. But, you know, to really kind of look at how, you know, many of the, the laws also around, you know, designing and architecture are kind of restrictive. They are outdated. They're even, most of them, obviously, uh, revolving around how humans perceive the world and not necessarily other animals. And so they don't necessarily align with our, you know, species guidelines because it is not necessarily uh, possible or easy to build that way. And then, of course, we might have to work with, you know, uh, a city might have a competition or some sort of interaction for a tender to get a certain project for a certain competition. And so then, you know, the people who are, uh, and it might have certain criteria on who is allowed to enter these sorts of competitions. And that might be only, you know, local firms or people that have already competed in these sorts of competitions before, which would automatically exclude, you know, the great architectural firms that are out there that are specializing in zoo animals and aquariums. And so again, you know, laws or regulations or particular guidelines are, you know, prohibiting from professionals in design and architecture for wild animals in human care to actually be at the table, which can, you know, really result in, you know, over and over again, the same problems, the same sort of building, and also the protection of architectural design. So you can't, you know, I've had that experience in a few uh, different facilities around Europe where we were not allowed to drill in the walls because it was protected by architectural design. And so instead, you know, of having wonderful climbing structures and things, everyone had to sit on the ground and well, other things like that. But so the system isn't working 
And there's various systems there, of course, in place. And from that, the symptoms flow, like, you know, outdated um, um, environments for animals. And so really, you know, thinking about how does design and architecture affect. And that, of course, is most of what I just talked about is external uh, challenges. But then, of course, we might have internal challenges where we say, when we design, let's make sure we have everyone from our facility at the table. Um, but it might very well be that not everybody that actually needs to be at the table is at our facility. So who the question is, like, who? what is the opportunity for us to actually make sure we have all the experts on the table, also from outside our facilities? And also, how do we make sure that when we visit other facilities, which is absolutely great, we don't continue to propagate the things that aren't really working or aren't really innovative? So how do we, you know, look from design and architecture, both internally and externally, at the challenges and, of course, our opportunities? Then another topic that I um, brought up was around the regulation of professions. And of course, as you know, there are many, many professions that are very strictly regulated, whether it's doctors and nurses to teachers, all kinds of professions. You have to have particular education. You have to do continued personal development. You have to do all kinds of things to maintain perhaps like points for flying a plane. And what is important to note that as far as I'm aware, there are very few professions in the zoo and Caribbean that, of course, also means sanctuaries and other uh, shelters we can think of that are regulated. So the only one that really comes to mind to me is the veterinarian, who obviously has an enormous amount of training and needs to continue to get points and other criteria checked to maintain you know, and to stay uh, a current veterinarian. Now, of course, we have seen an incredible change in how education has evolved within our community. Lots of universities, colleges, um, schools are now offering anything from certificates to full degrees in animal management and care and zoo biology and you know, even the very specific things like animal training schools. So that's absolutely fantastic. We have seen changes with regards to what uh, are the criteria for hiring people. So people with, you know, many zoos and aquariums today um, hire people with university degrees from anything from animal behavior to conservation to psychology. That's absolutely great. Lots of people are very active in continued personal development through courses, through com uh, conferences and anything like that. But of course, it's important also to look at where does that not happen? Or how do we make sure that the gaps in education? So for example, I'm a psychologist by training. My master's is in animal studies. But I have never actually done, you know, an animal care and management degree in that way. So it's very interesting to see in, in what ways do I also need to fill the gaps in my education and also the transition between levels. So how do you move from a junior to a senior to a curator precision or a zoological director? So there's all these various things 
to think of and how do we make sure that uh, internally, you know, we have this continued personal development with regards to animal care and welfare. And of course, also, how do we make sure that the um, CEOs and others involved, not perhaps directly with the animals, understand our profession and why it is important that we, you know, do animal welfare assessments, why enrichment programs need to have a budget and things like that. So it really becomes clear. So in the next podcast, I'm going to dive deeper into education. So for example, you know, one of the things that I find fascinating is when I found out in the Netherlands at the hotel school, the Hilton has actually a class in at that school. So Hilton dictates the curriculum. And I know that zoo associations and and zoos and aquariums are, and individuals working in research or other facilities are directly working with schools and universities on the curriculum, for example. But in many places that doesn't happen necessarily. But it is very interesting for me to hear that that is developing, but also to hear that like, for example, Hilton has a class in the hotel school that, and they dictate the curriculum. So they work really closely with this school to indicate what is it that people need to know when they work at Hilton. And I think that's a really, and, and they also have selection criteria. So I think, you know, uh, many of the animal care and management schools and universities, they of course have strict requirements to get in, but we don't necessarily do some sort of, you know, motivator, uh, some sort of criteria selecting on where I actually think, and I'll touch more on that in the next podcast when I'll discuss education, you know, what is it that the, the modern zoo professional needs to know? And that obviously includes myself. Um, but like Hilton, you know, working very closely with the school to not only dictate the, the curriculum, but also who gets into their classes. And so anybody coming out of these, this class can go straight into working in, in any Hilton um, facility because they have you know, that close communication. And I think that's an inspiration for our community to look at like how can we really synchronize that so that the people coming out of colleges, universities and schools related to animal, wild animal, and of course, domestic animal care and welfare, that that really synchronizes nicely. So lots of future directions. I'm going to leave them for the next podcast. You know, anything from identifying these system failures and specifically also what are our opportunities and what are our challenges, both externally and internally and really you know how do we increase collaboration and unifying and evidence-based animal welfare approaches you know creating global overviews of animal welfare legislation all of these will come back in these podcasts that are going to do go in a deeper dive in all these different topics and what was really interesting that after my presentation the whole group interactive in that workshop and where they were asked to reflect on these obstacles and challenges, as well as possible opportunities, because that's really key. And delegates were asked to indicate internal and external perspectives. And they were also you know, asked to think about what will the visitors think, or what will people who are not in favor of zoos and aquariums 
you know, what are they proposing or policy makers and so on. And the group consists of zoo and aquarium as well as sanctuary animal care professionals, veterinarians, researchers, policymaker, and of course students. So most participating delegates came from the Netherlands and Belgium, and one of the speakers came from Switzerland. But it was a very interactive uh, group, with, which uh, really gave us a lot of different information. So what we did, we added all these answers to a database, and we created word clouds because you know this was kind of the first, you know, conversation, if you like, around this topic, so that we could see which words or which solutions or which opportunities or which challenges, both internal and external, really popped out and were mentioned by people. And of course, as I mentioned, the aim of the workshop was to start this conversation and gauge kind of the insights and suggestions from people within our community, as well as a few people from outside of our community, so that we can together start to think of, you know, potential solutions and also as stepping stones for potential future research projects, because of course we really need to undertake uh, proper research in various ways to understand our um, opportunities better. So in the next related podcast, I will take a deeper dive into these different topics that I discussed today. And also while I talk about regulated professions and education, for example, I will share outcomes of the workshop and you know everything is going to be related also in the paper but in the meantime as information becomes available I will share it here and perhaps you feel inspired of taking up a piece of the puzzle because of course this is something that we really need to do together as I mentioned you know the animals need all of us and we also need all of us um, to make a difference for animals because of course you know, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a veterinarian, I'm not an architect. So I'm so many things and many more things that I'm not than I actually am. So everyone has their expertise and we have to put it together. And maybe you can pick up one of the pieces of this puzzle of any of these challenges and specifically uh, opportunities. So maybe you're already working on some of these aspects. So please reach out to me as I would love to hear more. Maybe I can include it as a case study or some information from your work into the article. And also, if you feel inspired to look into some of these topics and work more, because we are working with a few people on this, because as you can imagine, it's quite a lot of work and it's not always our domain, but feel free to reach out and perhaps there are opportunities for us to explore and work on them together. And I would like to end on a quote, which I that really, really resonates with me. I use it everywhere. It's also in my signature, in my email, and that's from Ralph Waldo Emerson. What you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you say, because that is exactly what we are about what we do and how we show up day in day out for the animals in the various professions in the various expertise that we have that you know if that speaks so loudly for what we do then yeah of course it is important to hear uh, what we say but what we do speak so loudly that you know i cannot hear what you say so thank you so much for listening to this podcast and as you know, well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself 
so that you can be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get the education, continuing personal development, and lots of tools and resources you need so you and your animals can flourish. So if you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description and join us in our community and become a member today. Thank you so much and I'll see you, not, not really see you, but see you in the next podcast.